Lance here is going to pray for us before we get started. All right, let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you so much uh, for this uh, GMHC conference and just the opportunity to come together uh, in one mind, in accord, Lord, uh, under the banner of Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, just wake us up this morning and uh, just uh, speak through Elliot and myself, uh, Lord, that we may uh, learn further about disaster response and how we may serve you. And it's in uh, your name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for joining us this morning. My name is Elliot Tenpenny, and uh, this is Lance Plyler. We both uh, work with Samaritan's Purse uh, on a lot of different medical projects, um, but the one we're here to talk about today is uh, the emergency field hospital and our new disaster response uh, framework that we hope uh, you guys can all be involved in. Uh, we're real excited about this uh, new possibility, this new capacity that we have. Uh, there are... Uh, if you look across the entire scope of international organizations, um, MSF, many of the secular organizations, there's very few outside of governmental uh, organizations and militaries that can put a work like this out. And as the Christian community together, as I can see probably dozens of faces in here that have deployed with us in the past, we're excited to be able to do this in the name of Jesus. So let's get started. Here you see a picture of what we uh, did in Ecuador uh, in April. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. April 16th, 2016. This is a picture from the town of Choni, Ecuador. Um, there was a 7.8 earthquake. Uh, almost 1,000 people died. Uh, and we left soon after this date to respond to this disaster. This was the first time that we were able to deploy this emergency field hospital. Um, and uh, we left uh, the U.S., as we'll talk about here. Uh, within days of the earthquake, around 50 medical personnel and technical personnel left with us that day. And we arrived five hours after departure on the jet that we take this out on and set up the hospital within 11 hours of arrival on site. Uh, in the coordination with the Ecuadorian Ministry of Health, this site was selected. When we go to these places, we work in concert with the local authorities, always. And they said, the damage was great in the north. We have one referral hospital a little ways away from the epicenter that was totally destroyed. You can see a picture of that there. Uh, the hospital Napoleon de Villa and um, had 117,000 people that were in that community, you know, in and around that community that used this tertiary referral center that was destroyed. So we stayed there and were able to use that um, area in this field hospital. A picture of what we did. This is a framework of the uh, emergency field hospital that was deployed in Ecuador. Um, here you can see uh, the red, the large red square in the front was the ER that uh, had the capacity for about 100 patients a day. 14 beds were there. We had 30 hospital beds that we used, uh, one OR that really was maxed out. Uh, throughout the two months that we were there, we uh, were used, like I said, as a tertiary referral center, which meant we did a lot of the surgeries and every trauma, orthopedic thing that the community couldn't have. We started out responding to the earthquake and continued filling the gap uh, where we needed to with the patients that came in from the local community. And some results of that deployment. We were there for two months, like I said, and saw a, a, a close to 1,400 patients. 
The Ministry of Health, when we were there in Ecuador, used us, like I said, as a referral center. They didn't want the local people coming straight to this center. Uh, they wanted to refer emergency cases. So for all 1,400 of those, almost all of those, were emergency referrals that arrived by ambulance. We did over 300 uh, major surgeries in that two months, so you can uh, do the math and know that that's around five cases a day, so we kept our surgeons very busy. And at the end, one of the things we're most proud of was the uh, ability to hand this over. We handed over this hospital and gave it in its entirety to the Ministry of Health, allowing it to become the framework and the basis of their new hospital. We'll show you a picture of that later. Um, they have staffed it and still are doing so on the ground right now. Um, and it's still serving as their local referral center. So uh, just uh, soon thereafter, actually just very recently, we found ourselves again in yet another disaster. Uh, you, I'm sure, all heard of Hurricane Matthew uh, that uh, devastated the Caribbean and uh, actually impacted our own country. Uh, we responded uh, very quickly thereafter uh, in the aftermath of uh, Matthew and uh, of course, one of the big issues we confronted uh, was a, a very significant outbreak of cholera that is endemic to Haiti. So we're going to, uh, just to get you a, a little uh, perspective on that, we're going to show a video uh, of our response there. And, and just know that our responses aren't always an emergency field hospital. It can go from a small team to a full Haiti earthquake field hospital deployment now. We have capacity to stretch between those different things. And you'll see that capacity here, mobile teams, small units that we sent out last month. Haiti has been hit by a, a massive hurricane, as if Haiti needed another uh, disaster. I mean, these people are already without, and now they've been hit yet again. And so. They don't have shelter. They don't have clean water. You can read about it and you can even see it on TV. But when you come here and you see it firsthand, it's unbelievable. You just, sorry. It's unbelievable. You, you feel like you have to help them. I mean, it's your moral obligation. After response is expediency, getting to ground zero as fast as possible. And so we came to Chardonnay where the needs were. We found out that there definitely, definitely is cholera here. We identified our site for our cholera treatment center. When we got here, we found out that people who were sick were just staying in their homes because there wasn't anywhere for them to go for care. You are exposed to all of the elements of the sun, the rain, no place to stay. And added to this, we're seeing this outbreak of cholera. So with the cholera clinic, we are providing a lot of hope. I mean, it's just total helplessness. So if you just desperately want to provide dignity and restoration for them, then we can do that through medical care and, and the gospel. So the opportunity we have to serve your people, we're going to You know, my heart is broken, man. There is a great need for outside help, and I think God's American first is here uh, to fill this gap for uh, medical needs. Pois é, mais importante você ver em mim, porque você tem que ir até sair lá com o mundo. Só vai gastar você que vai lá, que se for outra peste. The treatment for cholera is just rapid rehydration with fluids. However, we can get it in IV or 
I mean, it's really, I always think of it as Lazarus coming back from, from the dead. They've lost so many fluids through vomiting and, and diarrhea uh, that uh, you can't even uh, feel a pulse. And immediately we will start administering IV fluids and literally within 20 minutes a person that appeared to be deceased has risen from the dead and they will communicate with you and talk to you. It's very it's, it's easy to treat. It's just a matter of being there in time. There's a, a town uh, called Rindal in the mountains that's been completely isolated uh, as a result of Hurricane Matthew. So we are sending a, a large contingency of supplies via patient quarters, workers from Samaritan First, as well as donkeys and horses to hoist uh, the supplies uh, up the mountain. That's the only way we can get it up there. What does it take to get here? Well, everybody that's here right now that you're seeing uh, walked in here three or four hours, and today, even with a bunch of pack mules carrying supplies in. Many patients have died here because they're unable to get to care. So what we're trying to do is to move the medical treatment to the patients where they need it. It's a little more difficult for us to get there, but we're healthy. Um, and they aren't healthy enough to get down to where it's easy for us to get to. You want to take care of the patients who are already sick, but you really want to prevent more folks from getting sick. Bringing in Aquatac to try to help people treat water, looking at the water system here to try to improve the quality of the water that the folks are getting, to try to arrest the outbreak at the very start. We want to be here to serve the people of Haiti, not just now, but as they recover and uh, as we rebuild and, and really just help them to move forward. Haiti, I mean, it amazes me. It's just right next door to our neighbors. And the disparity is mind-boggling. It's just unbelievable how much there are people with and there are people without. And Haiti is without. There was a, uh, a pastor that said, Christ is all you need when Christ is all you have. And truly right now, I think that's all people have and that's all the hope that they have is just really holding on to Jesus Christ. And, it's been demonstrated by the love you guys are showing here. These are the people that Jesus loves. Yeah. These are the people that Jesus died for. These are the people that Jesus would have us love and would have us care for. So I immediately think we need to do everything possible because we are literally the hands and feet of Jesus in this place. Thank you um, for being here. Um, so as Elliot said, uh, in disaster response, we find ourselves in many different scenarios. Um, sometimes we utilize the field hospital. Sometimes we set up a cholera treatment center, as we did in this scenario. Sometimes we work through affiliate hospitals. But uh, in this particular situation, our, our big uh, uh, issue was, uh, as we've described here, is cholera. Um, and we were right at the heart uh, of the uh, epidemic. The New York Times stated uh, that Chardonnay District, where we were located, uh, they referred to it as the heart of Haiti's cholera epidemic. And it was, it was devastating just to see these people. There was nowhere for them to go. They had no alternatives. So uh, we were thankful uh, for the opportunity to be here. Um, 
as I look out in the audience, it's very gratifying to me. If some uh, faces look familiar, it's because they were just uh, they were there on that uh, video. So we appreciate uh, the people that are here and uh, our team, an amazing team. Um, uh, as I said, we were only the only uh, cholera treatment center in this district. There was really, while we were there, there was really two uh, significant outbreaks. Um, very challenging to get to these locations. One was in Rendall. Literally, we had to use pack mules to get our supplies there. Uh, the other facility um, where we were at uh, was uh, Camelot. And, um, and uh, a number of people uh, did die, uh, but uh, the people that we were able to access and treat, uh, we had uh, everybody survive. We had no losses there. So, again, we were blessed, uh, uh, and, and we give the glory to God. Um, in addition uh, to treating people for cholera, uh, we utilized a multi-sectorial approach, utilizing uh, water and sanitation training during the outbreak. As you know, I mean, that's the mode of transmission, is contaminated water that's been uh, contaminated with cholera. So we work hard, in addition to treating the people, to proactively uh, provide clean water and sanitation to uh, prevent such from uh, propagating and, and, and further occurrence. While we were there, uh, I guess we'll go toot our horn a little bit, WHO said best organized and operated CTC during the response. And again, we give the glory to God. Um, Samaritan's Purse is blessed with an abundance of resources, and um, which you know a lot of organizations don't have. And so we just pray that we use it to, uh, to you know, ultimately... Uh, to provide physical healing, but ultimately spiritual healing. Uh, while we were there, we treated uh, nearly 400 cases, and again, we didn't have any losses. So I give the credit to an amazing staff and uh, the God we serve. <clears throat> one thing that we just want to emphasize, and this is a quote from one of our pilots, uh, we're blessed to have our own aviational capacity at Samaritan's Purse. And one of our pilots that you see there uh, in the uh, cockpit of our DCA, he said it's not about the product, it's about the process. And I couldn't agree with him more. I mean, it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, what kind of equipment you're blessed with. If you don't have a system in place and you don't have the people that know how to utilize uh, those uh, uh, tools and technologies, it's for naught. So it's really important um, that we work in conjunction and, and collaboration one with another and that we have systems in place. And that's what we really try to do in disaster response at Samaritan's Purse. Uh, we have a dark system, which we'll describe in, in just a minute, but... <clears throat> the systems are very, very important so that everybody is, on, uh, is in accord and works together uh, for, the, for the greater good. So, as I, I just mentioned, uh, a DART program. Um, some of you all that are involved with us, uh, you'll know what that is. It stands for Disaster Assistance Response Team, uh, or DART. Uh, we actually uh, brought that uh, back from OFDA, um, our uh, Vice President of Programs and Government Relations uh, served as uh, the, the head of the OFDA, and when he came back, he brought that system, uh, and we've implemented it since then. Um, basically, though, uh, when we utilize this DART system, we're committed to meeting um, all, all the critical needs uh, uh, of victims of war, poverty, famine, disease, uh, and natural disaster. And again, one thing that I think that really sets Samaritan's, part, uh, Samaritan's Purse apart is that we do so in the name of Christ. Uh, if you're involved with Samaritan's Purse, you'll know we really do strive to be on the ground uh, ASAP. We work very, very hard to get there quickly. That's really, as I alluded to in the video, that's the name of the game because that's when mortality is, is at its highest, and, and it's really paramount that you get there quickly. So we work hard to do that uh, with the ultimate goal of saving lives and reducing suffering. 
Uh, and when we go there immediately, we make an assessment and we identify what are the greatest needs. And those are the needs that we try to respond to. Um, so really one thing about Samaritan's Purse, we don't just provide medical care, but we're really uh, multi-sectorial. So, uh, and a lot of times you'll find yourself wearing many hats. Um, so flexibility is the name of the game in disaster response. A lot of times you'll go and you think you're going to be an ER doctor and you end up scrubbing floors. So it happens. Um, but that's what uh, is uh, all about um, disaster response is being flexible and, and, again, wearing many hats. Um, as I often mentioned, um, we work in WASH, uh, food security, uh, NFI distributions, uh, shelter establishment, uh, and, of course, provision of medical care. Um, and really, the t- uh, and we cannot do it without you. Uh, there's, again, a number of people out there on our, our, on our DART team. And so we really need to have qualified people that are on call. A lot of these people have made steps in their life uh, so that they can respond with us uh, and, and be available. It's tough uh, being a medical professional and being available. So, um, but we can talk further uh, about how you do that. But, um, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a real blessing to be able to respond uh, to some of these very complex uh, disasters. Uh, so further, just a little bit more about disaster response in our DART program. Um, as you all know, most disasters are immediate onset. We do respond to slow onset as well, but oftentimes there will be uh, immediate onset like a hurricane or uh, an earthquake especially. And so really uh, we don't have any warning. Uh, and so you really have to, uh, again, take steps so that you uh, can be flexible and available. <laughs> Often our deployments uh, are for two to four weeks. Sometimes we respond a lot longer. And, but we have uh, multiple teams that come in to, uh, to um uh, to, to take over once uh, one team is, uh, uh, is complete. Um, ideally, uh, we like people that, uh, you know, do have international experience. Some people come in with uh, more experience than others, but uh, that's preferable um, so that you don't immediately, uh, your first, as you say, the first rodeo is not uh, a disaster. Uh, but we encourage you, uh, yeah, to get that experience and then, um, uh, we'll tell you a little bit uh, uh, longer about the application and, and how, uh, process and how you can get involved. Um, the situations are very variable. Um, sometimes uh, they're not too bad. Sometimes they're extremely difficult and challenging and dangerous. Uh, but we take every precaution we can. So with regard to the program, the composition, our DART system utilizes, it's really a, a, a corollary of two teams. We have what's called the Incident Management Team, and they're located back at our headquarters in Boone, North Carolina. And then there's a mirror image of that team called the DART Team, the Disaster Assistance Response Team. Uh, they're the hands and feet. They're the uh, men and women. They go out and respond to a disaster. The Emmet uh, really is there to provide uh, backup and support uh, uh, for uh, the people that are deployed on the ground. Um, they have access to many, many resources, and so there's a daily communication between the Emmet and the DART uh, so that we can provide and supplement all uh, the work that they're doing on the ground. We can also give them a number of statistics and uh, information, data, and, and feedback, again, so that we can maximize uh, our response and, and, and help ultimately the people that we're trying to benefit. Without going into a lot of detail, we use this uh, system, uh, the uh, incident command system. That's part of the DART system. Uh, it, again, uh, we... Uh, uh, utilize the same system that OFD, uh, OFDA utilizes, and uh, it really it's all about coordination. If you've been in a disaster response before, that's really the most challenging part is, 
you're, you're taking chaos and, and trying to organize it. So there's, uh, communication is uh, of highest importance um, when we impl- implement this program. So this is just a real quick diagram. I won't spend much time on this. As I said, there's two uh, teams uh, up at the top there. Uh, that's uh, the uh, Emmett. Uh, at the top uh, is what's called the Emmett Response Manager. He really provides complete oversight of the disaster response. Uh, we have what's called a mandate, and uh, he issues that mandate in the very beginning, and we, it's really it's, uh, it's the direction we take. You'll find yourself uh, wanting to help in so many different capacities. There's so many needs. Uh, but we, you'll, in fact, you'll, you'll be challenged with what we call mission creep because you see so many needs and everybody gets pulled in so many directions. But the response manager and the Emmett uh, establish a mandate and it says, okay, we're going to respond to cholera or we're going to respond to food insecurity or, or wash or whatever the greatest needs are. And again, there's a mirror image team on, on the ground. There's the DART team leader. He's essentially the same as the response manager. And then you can see underneath, uh, all the different uh, positions, which I won't uh, go into detail. Uh, there is the chief medical officer who provides oversight to our medical sector and medical response. And then finally, just uh, some of the different venues that we respond to in a disaster. As I said, the emergency field hospital, in fact, I call the emergency field hospital, uh, it's really our venue of last resort. Um, it's technically challenging to operate. It's very costly. Uh, logistically, it's very, very difficult. Um, sometimes we respond instead with mobile medical teams where we just have small uh, teams that we send out, especially if the uh, epicenter is widely dispersed. We utilize mobile medical teams. Sometimes we supplement our response like we're, uh, we have an emergency field hospital, but we also send out mobile medical teams too just to um, expand our uh, uh, response to uh, various uh, people in need. We also oftentimes we have affiliate mission hospitals all around the world. We have about 50 of them that we affiliate with. And uh, if we find that the uh, epicenter of a disaster is located near one of those hospitals, we partner with them. A great example of that was in 2010. We partnered with uh, Baptist Haiti Mission uh, just outside of Port-au-Prince after the earthquake. Um, Oftentimes, too, as Elliot's already alluded to, uh, we work with the Ministry of Health uh, as closely as possible and uh, oftentimes They'll have a, a pre-existing national hospital. We work as closely as we can with the nationals. You'll learn so much from them. They speak the language. They know the culture. They know the uh, endemic disease there. You'll never know as much about that country as they do. So work closely with them. We do. And then, like I said, uh, as a last resort, if, there's, uh, if all the uh, structure has been devastated by the earthquake or there wasn't a pre-existing hospital or clinic to work in, then we set up our emergency field hospital. And then lastly, I just wanted to show, this is a, a picture of um, uh, one of our uh, DART teams when we deployed after uh, Haiyan, uh, Typhoon Haiyan in uh, Tacloban, Philippines in 2013. And uh, I love that picture. I love every person in there. And uh, just one of the things that's really awesome about disaster response is you're in the foxhole with these people. You'll get to know them very well. Uh, you establish a lifelong relationship with them. Um, amazing, amazing people. And so there's a few other things that go into uh, responding, making the decision to respond. And this is one of the things. The first step before anything is sent out is how we evaluate the need. And this is one graphical way to understand that. Um, 
on the x-axis the severity of the acute, acute onset disaster, and on the y-axis low-income, middle-income, and high-income countries. You can tell here when a major disaster like Katrina hits in the U.S. in a high-income country, it doesn't need the same response from international humanitarian organizations like the same size disaster that hits Haiti. That just happened in Hurricane Matthew. So just a graphical way to understand that, some of the things that go into that decision being made. With our responses, more than anything, especially initially, speed is the most important. It's more important than our comfort. It's more important than the applicability to the need. It's more important than just about anything because if you don't get there soon, they die. It doesn't matter how big of a hospital you bring. It doesn't matter how many people you bring. They're dead before you get there. So the loss of life, in my mindset, is in 24 to 72 hours, especially after severe acute disasters um, like ma massive earthquakes. Uh, the problem, as this study shows, that very few organizations make that window. In their statement of the 43 that they arrived um, in Haiti and before, uh, none of them arrived early enough to provide medical trauma care. It's about speed. It's not about perfection. I love the statement, I drive Lance crazy with it, but slow is smooth, smooth is fast. It's a statement that was coined by the Navy SEALs. They said in acute stressful situations you have one of two responses. People either freeze up or you become jittery and start the browning in motion and nothing gets done. And so you start in these acute emergencies, these stressful situations, making the first decision slowly. You continue the second decision. You continue the third. You continue smoothly, and all of a sudden you're the fastest person on the scene. Because while everyone else is trying to assess things and wondering what to do and freaking out and trying to do different things, you're making decisions calmly, coolly, and collectively. In a disaster, the worst decision is no decision. In those decisions, you never have enough information. 80% is a luxury, is what we like to say. You never have what you need 100% uh, of the time to make that decision. So if you're a person that wants to stand back and say, I need all the facts, I need a, a full assessment, that's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult to make those decisions because we have to make decisions that may be wrong and accept the consequences based upon incomplete facts. And one of the best organizations in the world is the Israeli Defense Forces that do this. Uh, they're usually the first there, and we model a lot of our systems, a lot of the things we do after them. And this quote that from Dr. Marin, who's sort of a legend in this field, we're not running into the fire, but we're not waiting for the fire to die down. You have to understand, you have to start to move before you have a clear understanding. Some say don't leave if you don't know where you're going to land. No, we're leaving, and if we need to go elsewhere, we will. If you wait, you lose 24 hours in lives. And that's the mindset we try to have at Samaritan's Purse. And as our uh, vice president says, the quality of our work is the platform of our witness. And in disaster medical response, the speed is e equals quality. And this is how we achieve some of the speed that we can do. This is uh, DC-8 that is uh, stationed at the ready uh, in North Carolina to take this field hospital anywhere in the world within 24 hours if needed. Um, it can carry 40 tons and 32 passengers in it. It's a combi aircraft. You can see in the very back uh, the little windows, and that's where we sit, 32 people. And in the middle section is uh, 40 tons of supplies. And on the nose, most importantly, is helping in Jesus' name. So everywhere we go, no matter what video we're on or what news crew shows up, that's the first thing they see when we land.
But to keep focused, you have to prioritize. And this is a lot of what I do. The transport space, it seems like a lot, 40 tons. But when you think about everything that's involved in the hospital, that's really not a lot in the end. When you're thinking about all the medications, the IV fluids, all the equipment, all the tents, all the structures, everything we have to do to sleep and to live in these places. So we have to prioritize. And we have to prioritize keeping focused on the main thing. And the main thing is having a functional hospital with the capacity to serve the greatest needs in one flight of that airplane. So for us, I ask myself all the time, what is really a necessity when people are dying? Every single item, piece by piece, is prioritized. We make it uncomfortable for us because our comfort is worth far less than the lives that we save or the work that we're able to do. So we may be sleeping on the ground on a mat. Uh, for the first week. We may be doing very uncomfortable things like you saw these guys trekking up the mountain in donkeys and setting up carport tents and having patients, IVs, and they're on the ground and you're doing anything you can to save those lives and, and to share the gospel. But with the main thing, it always remains the main thing. That's uh, saving lives and reducing that suffering. With a goal always. We don't always do it, but it's our goal, and we're still striving towards it, of wheels up and everything we do uh, on this airplane in 24 hours. So whenever the trigger is pulled, people uh, come together. People are flying out of every airport all over the United States to wherever we're going commercially. We're piling people and everything we have on the airplane, and we're taking off to respond to these disasters as soon as possible. Speak a little bit about applicability. We say a lot about speed, but we're also focused on applicability as a secondary um, priority. The international standards exist. The World Health Organization uh, publishes international standards on sizes of responses that are appropriate. Time on the field, how many days, how many weeks are most appropriate to help people not only recover from the initial disaster phase, but also the disaster destroys the medical system. And so all the women that need an emergency operation for a pregnancy, all the women that, all the, all the young kids that needed something else done that can't get it, that's, that's part of the emergency also. And capacity. But look at the graph real quick. You can see the needs uh, and when they spike of these severe acute disasters. Number one is the trauma-related things after an earthquake. You can see the spike that happens and tails off very quickly. Number two, the trauma complications. Number three, the indirect cause of infectious diseases that spike days later because of the sanitation issues, because of the infections that happened, the open fractures, the things that weren't treated. And then number four, the accumulated elective care needs that we were just talking about. That in Ecuador, when we were there, demonstrated exactly what we did. At first, it was everything surrounded by an earthquake. Everything was crushed extremities. It became infected things that weren't able to arrive initially. Then it became the elective care needs and the, and the pneumonias and the, and the normal things that we're all used to treating every day. Talk a little bit about our system and take a deep dive into a lot of the things that we do to make this logistical deployment possible. Um, our mindset is we have to scale to both the size and the type of disaster. We have to be rapid and with little warning be able to go. So everything has to be ready. Everything has to be ready. So it makes it difficult because you don't know what scale of a disaster that you're going to respond to or what type of disaster you're going to respond to, but you have to have everything packed and ready to go in 24 hours. So everything we have, equipment, supplies, pharmaceuticals, are prepared and ready at all times based upon a logistical deployment system that I won't go into, but it's based upon these colors here uh, and how we pack things. 
in tiers and waves and modules with a focus to allow scalability and flexibility. Let's talk about scalability. Right now we have four different main hospitals that we can deploy at any time. A tier one hospital, which is an outpatient department, an ER. A tier two medical hospital, which is a inpatient medical service over on, on the top of the ER. A tier two surgical, which is one OR, the capacity to, of seven to eight major cases a day. And a tier two or a tier three hospital, which is the largest capacity we have, uh, two ORs doubles the capacity of the Tier 2 medical hospital. And each one of these levels sequentially builds upon the other one. The Tier 2 medical incorporates the Tier 1 supplies and everything that we have. The Tier 2 surgical incorporates everything that comes before it. Talk a little bit about modularity. And this is sort of a sneak peek. This is the new design. This is the new design for the field hospital the next time that you see us out there. And each one of these colors it corresponds to what you saw before. It's different parts of the hospital that allow us to uh, deploy different hospitals at different times according to the disaster. But we also focus on modularity. Modularity is we don't have to deploy a full field hospital every time we go. We can deploy pieces and parts. If we go to a mission hospital that's been half destroyed because of an earthquake, we can supplement what they have left to bring them up to full service and to serve the people in that area. It also allows us to deploy independent modules, and that's what happened in Haiti. We didn't need a field hospital there. We needed a cholera treatment center. And so we deployed modules within the field hospital. We pulled wards out. We pulled beds out. We pulled staff units out, and we deployed what was needed and not the full field hospital. All right. So transitioning to leadership, there's many things that we could talk about uh, with regard uh, to, to leadership, of course. Um, but again, the primary <coughs> focus is, is really, uh, as a leader, uh, a servant leader in disaster response, you're really, you're, you're looking at chaos, you're looking at anarchy, and you're trying to make it organized. You're trying to bring coordination so that you can effectively uh, uh, implement and bring the best response possible to the people that need it the most. Um, as I said, you're overwhelmed when you first get there. You're making, the first thing we do is we make an assessment, and it's overwhelming. There's so many needs. You'll never meet all those needs. So as a servant leader in disaster response, uh, you need to look at the mandate. Again, that's what we, uh, we established in the very beginning. We, we look at all the needs, and we quickly say, okay, what are the greatest needs at hand here? And then as, as uh, in provision of leadership, you need to focus on those and um, – and effectively implement with uh, the skill sets that you have and the resources that you have available. Um, and you really try to establish, you, you have to really remain calm. I know oftentimes in a disaster I'm, I'm praying, I'm saying, God, just, just work through me. You know, this is going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. There's long hours. You get tired. You, a lot of personalities, yeah, even in the Christian circuits, conflicting against each other. But you have to really... You know, that's where you, I just really, I step back and I say, God, I can't do this, but you can. And so I really, uh, as a faith-based organization, I'm just going to emphasize that. That's really what uh, Elliot and I do. And, and we really try to establish clear orders, making, following that mandate and just, you know, again, looking at your team and looking at the diversity of skill sets and implementing those clear orders so that everybody knows the marching orders. Everybody knows in, uh, in, in unison what we're going to do. 
Um, and, and again, it's very easy. As I said, there's, there's this, this drift, this mission drift where you, uh, it's easy to get off course. But as the leader, you have to bring everybody and you have to stay focused. Um, you have to really, uh, one of the things that Elliot mentioned was um, you're working with insufficient information. You know, ideally, you'd love to, to you know, get, uh, accumulate all the information, have 100% available to you. But uh, I would say 80% is a, is a generous number. Oftentimes, it's 50% or less. I mean, you're working with uh, minimal information, but you have to, as, again, as Elliot said, uh, no decision is a bad decision. You've got to make a decision with the information you have available, and you have to provide leadership, and um, you have to step forward. I think uh, a good leader is in the trenches with, you know, with uh, everyone else and, and, and implementing the work. Uh, so you have to move forward with the uh, limited amount of information you have. And then uh, I really can't emphasize enough, integrity is not optional. You have to maintain integrity. Um, again, I think it's paramount that uh, leadership uh, you know, is serving uh, with everyone else. I think that's the sign of a, a, a great leader. And that leader has to uh, be of the utmost integrity, Christian integrity. Um, and, uh, again, it's, it's difficult. You're tired. Uh, you get frustrated. Your old nature uh, <coughs> keeps coming out, but uh, you, you just keep regrouping and you move forward. Uh, in terms of, of teamwork uh, with regard to uh, leadership and teamwork, it says set the bar higher than what seems possible. So many times, uh, it, it's just I, I've, I've been so amazed when we've accomplished what we've accomplished, and, I'm, and I look back and say, how did, how did we do that? And, and, and ultimately... Uh, I wish I could take credit, but I just can't. I mean, it's, it's a God thing. Uh, you see so many miracles. Um, we've responded to so many places, li- Liberia and, and Ebola. There was just an event after event after event of miracles. And I can't explain it except God made it happen. So I think we have to submit ourselves to God, um, and um, we set the bar high. Uh, we train before a disaster. We don't just go out there and, and then you know, start making decisions. A lot of this was done preemptively. And so many of you all have participated in some of our, our dart trainings and simulations. That's really essential that we do that. Uh, that's why, again, it's, it's great that we all glean experience before we come to the table and respond to a disaster. We select our teams very carefully. We have a careful application process, and we, we, we pray about who we select. Um, uh, just some of the characteristics of our team, they're very passionate about helping the hurting. They're very, very passionate about that. Again, as Elliot said, a lot of times, you know, they, they put their others before themselves. Um, I think of a Bible verse, Philippians 2.3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And that's really important. A lot of our DART members are very, very dedicated. Um, they will go... <laughs> I mean, some of the things they've done, it's been amazing. They're incredibly dedicated people. They put their, their self in, in, you know, in jeopardy. Again, we try to balance that and be careful about what we do, but very, very dedicated and then extremely compassionate. Um, we, we want you know, a team that's very compassionate. When we reach out to our beneficiaries, it's not just about meeting their, you know, their hunger or their thirst uh, or their, their wounds, but it, it's about ultimately providing you know, the message of Jesus Christ. And I think if you do that, you can't help but be compassionate. Um, and, and I've already mentioned, you know, minimizing self. <clears throat> As a leader, and, and when you look at your team, you really need to look at strengths and weaknesses. It really, to me, it, it embodies what, what it says in the Bible about the body of Christ. 
You know, there's so many times where, like in a disaster, I wish I had a certain skill set, and, and I just didn't have it. But Elliot did, and, you know, like Elliot's phenomenal at logistics. I'm terrible at logistics. Um, but that's the body of Christ. So you know the strengths and you know weaknesses, and you really you work together uh, uh, to uh, provide the, the greatest uh, benefit for those you're serving. Um, select for cover, that's just, uh, again... Um, what did you mean by that, select for cover? <laughs> when you select your team, you have people that have strengths and weaknesses. And this is what I want to encourage you by, about. Not all of us have everything, just like Lance said. Some of us are very uncertain about our skills in one subset of place. We have OB-GYN physicians that go out with us and say, I can do this, but how am I ever going to do that? Don't worry, because we purposefully do this in a way that covers over those weaknesses with other people's strengths. We know what people struggle with. We understand from our background where we're going to struggle with what you're going to see. And we make sure there's other people there that can cover over those and hold you up whenever those struggles do come. All right, exactly. And then uh, <laughs> uh, also we, we set boundaries and we monitor team structure. So uh, we do go to some very precarious places, uh, and, uh, but we still we have to set boundaries. Um, you know, prayerfully we decide what we should and shouldn't do. Um, and we do uh, constantly are monitoring team structure. We make sure that the appropriate people are assigned to the, their skills, you know, and their strengths. And uh, it, it's constant uh, process because it, it's very, very dynamic and fluid in a disaster. The needs are changing all the time. And so you have to make sure uh, as a leader and, and, and over, overview of the DART team that uh, everybody is uh, on task and following the mandate. Uh, again, you'll, 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 if you've been in disaster response, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you're, you see so many things, so many needs, and you get pulled in a, mil- a million directions, but you just have to stay focused on the mandate. That may, mandate may change over time as the needs change and, and the, uh, um, uh, the disaster changes. Uh, communication, you can't you know, un- understate how important, uh, or you can't emphasize enough, excuse me, uh, how important communication is. Over-communicate in a disaster. Uh, you think you maybe you said something clearly to somebody, but it's there's so many you know challenges and, and, and so many variables going on and distractions. You have to communicate over and over again, and uh, just deny yourself uh, when you do that, and um, and just try um, prayerfully to communicate your message to everyone. Uh, and then as a leader, we really say get out of the way, and that's that's the honest truth. Is we bring incredible. Uh, incredibly gifted teams uh, to the table, and then we just uh, get, get out of the way. So that's, the, that's the, the fun part of my job is, you know, just identifying you all and getting you there, and then we just let you guys do what you do best, and that's provide medical care and uh, respond to all the sectors. When you get out of the way, you get amazing people doing what they do best. People like Henry Smoke here, ER doctor who can do fantastic things that's seen everything, but doesn't forget the compassion of each patient that comes through. Like Kelly Seitz, one of our nurses, who loves, personally loves with a, with a passion that I don't understand, each and every single patient that comes through. Lee McCluskey, orthopedic surgeon, who takes time when we're asking him to do seven or eight major orthopedic surgeries, 18 hours a day, to pray with each and every person and prioritize what's most important. But we serve together. And I love this picture. I love this picture because this picture contains biomedical technicians, 
military personnel, doctors, electricians, nurses, admin people from Samaritan's Purse, all doing the exact same thing together, setting up this tent, because together we serve. There's no one on these disasters that's better than anybody else. The words, that's not my job, don't exist. If it needs to be done, it gets done. It doesn't matter if you're there with an Ecuadorian military guy or you're there with an anesthesiologist. The job gets done. And when you come together, you can do amazing things. You can do amazing things. Like setting up this hospital in 11 hours after arriving and being able to take care of the many, many patients that are waiting on you every time you arrive. So maintaining high-quality care, we also uh, emphasize uh, maintaining not just speed, not just applicability, but quality. Um, It's always a balance, quality versus capacity. We can't bring everybody we want. We can't bring everything we want. But we do careful research and development of the appropriate equipment and supplies. Uh, You can see uh, us using a sonicide ultrasound here, the uh, the lab equipment, the OR equipment, specific things that aren't often used, especially in the U.S., and sometimes even internationally, that are light, that are deployable, that are applicable for these situations. And then we focus on the small things. The checklists make a difference. Everybody knows that now, but it's, we have to focus on these things. The handoffs, the rounds, the, the, the nurses being involved with the rounds and the handover of patients It's amazing if you focus on the small things, the big difference that it can make. Everybody wants a a CT machine or whatever else there is, but what really matters are the small things and the things that you can actually control. And just what I like to do, uh, logistical replenishment system, making sure that when we run out of things, things are on their way. And in the best case scenario, that we don't run out of things at all. Picture I just want to bring to your attention to show you guys a couple specific little points. This is Dr. Tony Dabari and Lee McCluskey doing orthopedic surgery in uh, Ecuador. They uh, they're using a uh, very portable X-ray machine that fits in a uh, Pelican case that we bring with us as their makeshift C arm, um, and using uh, what's in Dr. McCluskey's hands is a is a Bosch drill with a sterile chuck and a sterile wrap. Uh, around a drill you can buy um, at Home Depot uh, to be able to put these things in appropriately, still sterile, but applicable to the setting, able to be reproducible for us. Um, And there's many other things we can show you like that. Uh, You can see the lights in the background, these small lights that fit into a case this big that produce the light you need to do almost any kind of surgery. The tent they're in that fits in a small crate that blows up within five minutes to start being able to care for these patients. All these things are what we're busy selecting and doing. So another uh, point that we really like to emphasize when we respond is self-sufficiency. They're already, when you respond, they're already without. And so uh, it's really important that when we go that we don't drain the system. So um, you'll see to the left there, that's a reverse osmosis system. Sometimes clean water uh, is not readily available. When we just responded to Haiti, we were right there beside the ocean. There wasn't uh, clean water available. So we were, again, we're blessed with some of these technologies, and we used that RO system uh, to um, uh, desalinate and uh, uh, clean the water. 
Uh, in the middle there, you can see that we're um, uh, that's uh, our response in Haiti. We're uh, again. Uh, we're utilizing our filtration system to clean the water to make sure that the OR has an abundant supply every day. Uh, and then uh, right there you see some of our technicians working uh, with the Ecuadorians to uh, repair our, our generators. So again, just want to emphasize that point of self-sufficiency that we bring sufficient food and clean water sources for our own and for our beneficiaries. Um, so uh, one of the uh, quotes we have here, a Haitian proverb, it says, Giving people medicine and not giving them food is like washing your hands and drying them in the dirt. So, again, that just is a beautiful way of emphasizing um, how important it is that we bring uh, all the sectors of response um, and that we don't tax the system. And then, really, uh, I think uh, throughout this talk, we've certainly tried to emphasize this. We try to meet physical needs so that ultimately we can... Uh, when they're respect and, uh, and if invited to do so, we like to reach out to them spiritually. So there is a Samaritan's Purse, a real focus of the, the spiritual aspect of response. Um, there's many times uh, there's an opportunity for evangelism as you serve people. Sometimes you're able to um, uh, share your faith. Um, sometimes there's a language barrier, so we have translators there. We also have, uh, as you can see right here, we have uh, these two persons here, our chaplains will deploy with us because we are so busy meeting the medical needs. Sometimes we don't have sufficient time to, to evangelize as effectively as we'd like to, so we bring chaplains with us. But we do start every day with devotions and prayer. Uh, if you've been with us on deployment, that's, an, that's the best part of the day, starting off in, in you know, a time of devotion, reading scripture. And, um, and the DART team, we have volunteers that, that lead the devotions every day. It's just great to hear you know, from them and, and their perspective on verses from the Bible. And just again, just starting your day in prayer. And then um, also uh, a component of Samaritan's Purse is Operation Christmas Child. It's the shoeboxes, uh, uh, we've affiliated that in order to distribute millions of shoeboxes, uh, it's really a Christmas gift for uh, children in need around the world. We've uh, developed an incredible network of churches. We call them our OCC churches. And so it really, uh, again, this wasn't our idea. It just evolved over time. We have this incredible uh, network of thousands and thousands of churches all around the world that uh, help us through OCC. And so when we respond to the disaster, often there's many churches around in the community that are OCC churches. And so we can utilize them to uh, better respond and also just uh, help us to provide that spiritual uh, component of our response. It's amazing whenever you arrive on a setting or a situation, it's happened to me many times, when you arrive there, and there's people saying, hello, my name is Jorge. I'm from this church and I'm here to serve you. And we would never be able to do that without the, that shoebox program. Um, it's very encouraging. So uh, we just uh, wanted to close. Uh, we'll share just really uh, two quick stories. Uh, I'll share the one on the left. Um, Diana, um, it was a lady um, that, I'm sorry, no, go ahead. Uh, a lady that uh, um, she had gas gangrene in her leg from a motor vehicle accident. And uh, um, really the team, I can't say enough about the team. I mean, uh, this lady was uh, on a ventilator. Um, she was uh, intentionally paralyzed um, on pressors, triple antibiotics, um, but uh, she did lose her leg, but uh, she, we saved her life, and, uh, or God saved her life, and um, it was really, it was nothing short of miraculous. To see that kind of technology implemented in the field hospital in Ecuador was amazing, 
And in the aftermath of that, Diana, she rededicated her life to Christ. And then her son, Jimmy, um, became a Christian through that process. And to just to be involved with that and see that life-changing event, I mean, it was catastrophic to see her lose her leg. But again, she's, you know, she, uh, her life was saved and, and her, her son's life was saved for uh, eternity. So it was amazing. The gentleman on, <coughs> excuse me, the gentleman on the right um, arrived late one night. Uh, after swallowing lye and rat poison, trying to kill himself. He, uh, he arrived, and everyone thought that he was going to die. He was intubated. He had every, he had every uh, thing we could possibly do for this gentleman. And instead of, A, dying, or B, having complications such as a perforation or a fused esophagus, this gentleman slowly started coming back. One night... He woke up about three days later, and this nurse here, Shelly Kelly, brought the chaplains in, and they talked to him for hours upon hours upon hours, and he became a Christian. He gave his life to Christ. But what I'll always remember is about three days after that, when he was starting to get back up and around, he came to our devotions in the morning, our staff devotions, and he sat there and looked at us and said, I'm so glad I did this to myself, because if I wouldn't have done this to myself, I wouldn't have a new heart now. And to hear people like that and the impact spiritually it makes of these works is what makes this all worthwhile. And just real quickly at the very end here we talk about cooperation. On the left we have um, one of our nurses, uh, Brittany, who's handing over this hospital to the local Ecuadorian staff. These are the people that are still operating this now and planning to operate it for the next two to three years. And everywhere we go we work with the military. We work with the military um, in and around everything we do. And that helicopter was quite an experience. I was a little nervous about that, um, <laughs> taking off. And one of the Ecuadorian military guys looked, uh, re- leaned over to me and said, Don't worry, it's a 1983. <laughs> and it's French. <laughs> I don't know if that was supposed to make me feel better or not. But uh, lastly, generosity. Generosity in what we do. We turn these things over to the nationals whenever we leave. We leave these things. You know, on the left here you can see our uh, biomedical technician here, uh, Mr. Jim Moore, who's showing uh, the local um, folks how to operate the OR table. Um, on the right, the trauma team, excited that they finally have a place they can operate for the first time after a month after their hospital was destroyed. And in the middle there, the headline in the national newspaper was, they are returning without tools. They return without tools, and that was, in, that was encouraging for us. Because of the proof given by this ministry that will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. And that's a sign from the last day that we were in Ecuador when we turned this over to the locals in Chone. Lastly, I want to show you this quick video. We do have just enough time for it. Shows you a, a total overview, gives you a little bit about what we did in Ecuador, and then uh, shows you how you can be involved. The Sheridan's Purse has been involved in emergency medical response since 1992. And over the years, whether it was in Rwanda or Bosnia or Honduras, when it's like we have three people down here, there's not enough medicine, no doctors, no nurses. Emergency medical response is always something that we have continued to grow in. We're so desperately short of supplies, we're so desperately short of people, everything is overloaded. After the earthquake in Haiti, we recognized the need to take it up to another level. Haiti was a very pivotal time for us. 
that's where we really started to move forward with the concept of uh, development of our own emergency field hospital. As a nurse, I want to go and help. I want to see people transformed through the gospel by providing medical care. And so to bring a hospital after a disaster is pretty incredible. Preparing ourselves to deploy it, to run it, to identify the kind of water filtration system, to figure out what kind of laboratory testing equipment we wanted. We've had medical staff working on these questions for the last three years. We have put together what we now call the EFH, the Emergency Field Hospital, to deliver to the field to have the response appropriate to the disaster. It was unexpected. I felt so scared. I thought the end of the war was coming. I could see all the lights in the street were shaking from the side to side and hear the booms and the crashes that the houses around me began to collapse and people were running out. April the 16th, about 6 p.m., there was a 7.8 earthquake in northern Ecuador. At the time, uh, we knew there was going to be significant damage and the death toll began to climb. There were 800 people killed, reportedly about 25,000 injured. And in the town of Chone, the Ministry of Health asked us if we could set up an emergency field hospital because their hospital was unusable. Today we're in Greensboro, North Carolina. Behind me is the DCA airplane. This is the maiden voyage. We're going to take this airplane today. It's loaded with the emergency field hospital. We're going to land in Guayaquil, Ecuador. If you'll notice on the nose of the airplane, it says, Helping in Jesus' name. And I want everyone who sees this plane to know that it's coming in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. With having the DCA now and our very own field hospital, we were able to come in very, very quickly. We eventually made five voyages, utilizing the DCA to transport uh, over 100 metric tons of supplies. Once we arrived on site in Ecuador, it took us 11 hours to get the hospital set up. And it was due to many years of work developing a logistical deployment system that relied on tiers and waves and colors, so we knew exactly where every island was to go. We had a number of challenges, but through the grace of God, we were able to overcome those things and do something that was much bigger than ourselves. Right now, in Emergency Field Hospital, we have uh, one operating room and 32 beds. Uh, behind me, uh, the, the, the first tent right here is our triage tent. This is where they're primarily assessed. And the larger tent behind it is the emergency room. And I think we have about 13 or 15 beds in the emergency room. And then in the other tents, we have a male ward and a female ward. Uh, we've got staff living quarters. Uh, we have a tent where our pharmacy is. We have a tent where the operating room is. Uh, we've got generators. All of this is self-contained. We have many skill sets from many different types of subspecialties, from trauma surgeons to general surgeons to orthopedic surgeons, anesthesiology care. So we're very, very blessed to meet those needs. The work is, is very exhausting. It was a hot environment, and you work every single day, so there are no days off. Just the environment also encourages you. There's many people that were all working hard together. The day of the earthquake, Marie was playing with her cousins um, and some siblings at the park when you know, the earthquake began. She actually ran from the site, a small wall had fallen on her leg. 
She unfortunately sustained some fractures, and of course she didn't need surgery. Early this morning we did surgery. She's doing great. Most operatively she looks great. My whole signs have been stable. But her daughter's having surgery. She's okay. Yeah. And then unfortunately mom at the same time came in sick with bilateral pneumonia. But yes, it kind of, family, unfortunately, really needs a lot of prayer. There's also a little boy named Ishmael in the ward, and Ishmael was burned. I think a pot of hot water came off the stove during the shaking, and he's burned down his backside and down his legs. And all that. he actually reminds me of my grandson. And you see them come in, and uh, you know they're broken. Every one of those people are very important. I've never been part of a team that functioned as well as that did. This team worked together to really demonstrate the love of Christ like I've never seen before. Samaritan's Purse needs a lot of people to make a hospital like this work. What we are looking for are people who want to get involved in helping others during times of crisis. It requires confidence, being willing to take a step in faith, hard work, flexibility, because we're going to go to areas of the world where chaos reigns. It's just an incredible opportunity to go where God has called you to go and to serve in a capacity that is so desperately needed. The future of this project is to address medical needs, but also to feed people, to provide them water, provide them shelter. We are working very, very diligently to be prepared for the next disaster. So we're very strategically training medical personnel all around the world so that we can have a global response system. And in the future, we now want to have two field hospitals ready to deploy at all times. We want to intervene as early as we can to help as many people as we can, both physically and spiritually in the name of Christ. And guys, one last thing before we go. This isn't about us. This really isn't about an organization. This is about the work that we can do together uh, to further the name of Christ. It's amazing to me to see when we go out with these type responses that the only other organizations are the U.S. military, the Israeli military that are with us, and the body of Christ working together to be able to do this right alongside. We couldn't do this without you, and we invite you guys to join up with us because we need each and every one of you guys in one capacity or another uh, to be a part of this work to make this, make this happen. You want to say anything? Just uh, in closing, uh, if you're interested, uh, there's a, a website that you can uh, fill out an application. Uh, we have a booth downstairs. Uh, come by and see us. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, guys.